0: Hi, everyone. My name is Max Shannon. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Jack Spallone. Jack is the head of crypto at HiFi Labs, a company that develops and empowers great artists and their ideas to help them shape the future of music. Jack was previously senior product manager at Consensus, and prior to that, project lead at Ujo, alongside other successful stints at Resonate, Resonate Cooperative and Live Intent. Yet, yeah, Jack's passion for music is embedded within his early ventures of creating music agencies and platforms and curating artists, brands and identities. Jack, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, can I start off by asking you what your role as head of crypto is and what your day-to-day life is like?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So this is actually a new company I am joining um, I guess by way of background, I uh, I can give you a little bit of kind of what I've been doing for the past year and a half since I've left Consensus, and that segues really nicely into what I'm doing at HiFi Labs. Um, after working at Consensus for over three years and working on Ujo Music, um, I learned pretty much, you know, the the extent of where crypto intersects with music, and I recognize that building a product. Um, is a very meaningful way of bringing a lot of artists and uh, fans into the Web3 and crypto ecosystem. Uh, However, working directly with artists and building more bespoke activations for them, leveraging crypto, for me, felt more compatible with the platform that is Web3, as opposed to building an application like Ujo that is a one-size-fits-all. So to give some context there... In May of 2020, I worked with artist RAC, and we released uh, tape. Tape was a token on Ethereum, and it was redeemable for an actual physical cassette tape in the real world. Um, It ended up becoming very successful and was the most expensive cassette tape ever sold. And this is something that we did directly with RAC and his fans, and that was the extent of that. Um, Beyond that, I continued to work with RAC. We worked on... um, a social token, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about. Um, And then I've been working with other artists that have kind of come through the funnel and wanted to explore different things. And in thinking about what the best orientation for me was, I increasingly realized that being in a position where I'm not necessarily building a one-size-fits-all product, but I could act more like um, an agency with resources to understand the needs of a certain artist their fans, and then explore what it would take to build that, and how Web three or crypto could intersect with that, um, has been much more advantageous. So, a couple different things aligned for um, me and HiFi Labs. HiFi Labs was started by the former head of music at Patreon, and this this guy named Joe. He's he's a friend of mine. He he realized when he was at Patreon that the vision of Patreon. Um, this vision for enabling creators to have their own economies um, on their own terms was still limited by Patreon, the platform, and the tooling that it had available. So he recognized it. Was there a way in treating the open web and all of its tools to basically be this invisible Patreon for artists? And are there companies out there that take that very approach and service artists in that way that make them the center of their economy rather than a platform. And while he didn't necessarily jump to web three, I was introduced to him and we both realized that we were oscillating around the same very thing. And with his background and my background, we felt that from a technical perspective, we're pretty well covered in addressing artists' needs with technology. So I've actually been at Hi-Fi Labs now for a few weeks. Um, my day-to-day is you know, still on-ramping and getting to know everybody as well as the various different things that we're working on. Um, I'll say Hi-Fi Labs has done things like live stream concerts and Discord. Um, they also sign artists. Um, they have a little bit of an a and function. Uh, to develop emerging artists. We have a big, big emphasis on teaching artists resiliency in their careers. Um, A lot of different soft skills that um, are equally as important as some of the more hard things like technology. Um, So yeah, it's kind of been a, it's it's, it's still emerging and we have some kind of big plans with what we want to do with crypto. And I could tease some of those out here today, but um, I won't go into full detail about that.
0: Awesome. That sounds super interesting. What we'll do is we'll start off with NFTs, move on to DAOs, then move on to the uh, music industry as a whole. So can I start off by asking what an NFT is? And then alongside that, how do you create one?
1: Sure. Yeah. So an NFT is merely a data point on a blockchain. Now, a blockchain is basically... Um, you could You could equate it to a google spreadsheet that anyone can access at any time but nobody can change the prior history of and if you think about the implications if you really back out from that um, there is no kind of trustworthy shared source of information uh, that human human history has ever benefited from Um, I mean you know about how history is you know shaped by the victors or that old saying Um, in this case with a public blockchain specifically um, you basically have a ledger or state of information that cannot be changed. So this was created primarily for financial purposes because there is a lot of value in having a ledger that cannot be manipulated um, that inherently can bring value assignment to assets in a digital context that we never before could achieve. This is what Bitcoin introduced. But if you take this a little bit further and you allow programmability within that actual state network, um, you have something like a smart contract platform. Smart contracts are basically just the ability to prescribe logic to those actual assets of value in um, in that spreadsheet or in that state network. So After um, Ethereum emerged in 2015, there was a lot of development around making that state network programmable. And for this, it was specific to Ethereum. But one thing that was um, recognized early on was we need assets that are non-divisible. Because if we have assets on chain that represent real world assets, then there are certainly real world assets that are non-divisible. Financial assets, like a dollar is divisible or like a euro or a pound are all divisible. You can divide them and then you have half of one. Um, and that still is an increment of value. However, you cannot divide a house. You cannot divide a product. You cannot divide um, a you know collector's Birkin bag. These types of things that are non-divisible but could could have some value by being referenced on chain, necessitated the standard for a new way of describing these things so what emerged is an incredibly technical jargon term non-fungible token um it's, e- it's erc 721 uh this is basically the technical semantic language for ethereum and while this emerged in 2017 um it really didn't take off from a uh consumer crypto standpoint uh really until 2020 and 2021 um the the background is there were some early iterations on what these could be uh when i was at consensus frankly we were researching um what an nft token could do for cpg consumer product goods um, mean inventory management um, perhaps um for actual manufacturers, but also supply chain, uh, but also potentially as taking that item along its lifetime and issuing it ultimately as a receipt, a proof of purchase. Um, again, this is just a data point on chain. Um, however, what emerged were um, multiple marketplaces that recognized that digital art could benefit from leveraging this same sort of semantic architecture and. They could use it to describe digital assets that are non-divisible, like an image or a song. And very early on, one of the one of the first marketplaces that emerged was Super Rare. Another one was OpenSea, um, Rarible. These are all popular NFT marketplaces today on Ethereum. But really, in 2020, we saw an explosion of NFT marketplaces, and these were more next wave. They had new audiences. They weren't the inherent crypto-first audiences, but rather they went out and, and have a bunch of uh, legacy world or real world artists, their fans, all started pouring into crypto. And they did so at a time during um, the underlying assets of crypto really appreciating. So it, it really kind of bootstrapped a moment in time where people were getting into crypto, they were buying crypto assets to buy NFTs, and the assets they were buying to buy those NFTs, such as Ethereum... Uh, were appreciating pretty rapidly. So it created this massive inertia to people coming into this world of NFTs because they were simultaneously making money off of them. And then God forbid, they were selling these NFTs at a profit. They were really making money. So that is an NFT. That is the moment of NFTs um, right now is you know, I kind of understand it or see it. There's a lot more going on that's incredibly interesting, um, but I can jump into that if, if you've got any questions there.
0: Awesome. That was uh, that was incredibly in-depth. And um, this leads actually really well onto um, another question, which is you mentioned that all these NFT marketplaces were emerging. But do you think these um, marketplaces will converge onto one or a few platforms such as Spotify and Apple Music or do you reckon they'll be released onto OpenSea, you know, Rarible um, or will they potentially sit on a DAO, which we'll get into later?
1: I I think, you know, potentially all are true. Um, You know, I should highlight, and this is not something that's obvious to everyone, but the beauty of Web3 is that it is the platform. With Spotify, you have a proprietary walled garden of user information, user activity, the actual underlying assets, such as the music catalogs. Those are all hosted on Spotify servers and they do not share that accessibly to an open market. But by putting NFTs on a blockchain, the little data point on the blockchain that is the NFT most often points to the actual asset, given it's a JPEG or an MP3 or a you know, PNG file, whatever it is, is typically stored in decentralized storage network and it's issued from a user's wallet. So here we have identity, the user's wallet. We have the actual asset, which is sort of decentralized storage network. And we have the proof or the provenance of that asset with its assigned value referenced on the blockchain. So if you and I wanted to, we could go create an application today that pulls in all of that information and we can start displaying NFTs and we can enable users to come and connect their wallets and interact with the NFTs that they have. And we could do so in a very permissionless way. We don't need to ask OpenSea for access to the NFTs that they've helped mint. We don't need to ask SuperRare for the NFTs they've helped mint. We do not need to go out and do that anymore because the platform is Web3 in this instance. It has the characteristics of the platforms that we understood in Web2. So I think that there will be certain market factors that consolidate where audiences go on these NFT platforms. But I think the kind of core impetus of people joining and participating in a lot of this NFT activity right now will will shift from just collectorship and speculation and even, you know, like the speculative money-making that you see with people flipping NFTs, like we will shift away from those. And I don't think that those will go away, but... NFTs will have much, much more novel use cases, and we will see numerous applications emerge that leverage existing uh, data that's already been referenced on chain and in these decentralized storage networks and connected to the identities of people via their wallets. Okay, what
0: are the most no- notorious or well-known artist music artist NFT sales um, that you know of, and what are the benefits that have arisen to all parties?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, well, I think you know it. It most notably, um, the biggest music-related NFT sale was from artist Justin Blau, and I believe he did like eleven and a half million dollars um, from selling his NFTs. In one sale event, and he's made, you know, more money off NFTs and other sales. Um, and that and that's pretty notable. Um, eleven and a half million dollars is obviously no small chunk of change, but it's certainly a lot for a musician whose primary revenue um came from live performances, and that was all decimated from COVID um in 2019. And then there's others such as RAC, who's done a lot of uh NFT drops that have been very, very successful. Boy's Noise is another one. Disclosure is another one. They sold, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, the audience is familiar with the Disclosure face that they put over their imagery. They sold that face as an NFT for, it was like $140,000. And that was pretty prominent. But what I'm most excited about these is not the price tags. It's that the people that bought these NFTs now have a direct and permanent relationship with those artists. And by that, I mean, if in the future, one of these artists wants to interact with their fans in a way that they need proof that they had purchased something from them prior, the artist would have to work with their agent, have to work with their past tours to have access to that user information. They would be hard-pressed to get a user access access to user information of their, you know, Spotify followers, things like that. Um, So with this relationship now, they can reference that on chain permanently in perpetuity without ever needing to have that access be granted from a platform. So my main point here is that with NFT sales, you're creating relationships directly with your fans forever in a way that we've never really had made possible to us before. Um, I I speak to artists that made, you know, they, they had over, you know, 5 million followers on SoundCloud. And I don't think 10% of those followers went and refollowed the artist on Spotify when they stopped using SoundCloud and started using Spotify. Now that's, that, that's kind of like a, A little bit of a tragedy, right? Like a follow of an artist is something that, you know, if we follow the history of platforms and music and the internet, if I have to adopt a new platform every decade, um, I'm certainly going to have some attrition in the artists that I follow. And that's a shame. That shouldn't be the case. And when that platform ultimately goes down, like we saw with MySpace, that information is gone forever. And unlike, you know, showing up to a ticket sale and proving that you had a ticket stub from like a 1985 concert and saying, I still have that ticket stub. And therefore you maybe have access to a discounted ticket today of like a reunion tour. Um, We don't have that information. The digital nature of that information is ephemeral, unlike ticket stubs. But now with the blockchain, we kind of have a permanent anchor that we can create. And unlike a ticket stub, you can't lose it. Okay, and now let's move on to
0: DAOs, Um, and it's a bit of a three-part question. Can you explain to our listeners what a DAO is, how do you create one, and how they function structurally?
1: Sure, so this this is a very, very loaded topic because DAOs exist on a spectrum. Um, DAOs, from a very technical implementation point of view, um, I think are a little bit more than what we are seeing today in practice, particularly if you look at what was originally conceived as the idea for what a DAO could become and what is being done now, they're very, very different. Um, That being said, there are many groups that are kind of moving towards, I think, what DAOs were originally conceived to be. Um, But I also want to highlight that the things that we see people doing that claim to be DAOs, while they might not necessarily be DAOs um, in their purest form, Um, I would still extend the DAO acronym to them because I think that that's just a way of culture adopting language. And um, I think it is an appropriate kind of terminology for what is happening, although it is a little bit removed from its original intention. So I'm going to unpack that um, because that is a little bit of a distinction that I thought it was important to make. But DAOs are originally conceived um, in the Ethereum white paper, as a decentralized, autonomous organization. If you go back to the point I made, could theoretically automate via smart contracts the very, very practices that sometimes require entire departments to administer. Um, this could be things like insurance companies could be automated and be programs. This could be um, like home escrow accounts. This could be like... Um, A lot of different legal operations, such as like wills and estates could be programmed and there could be, you know, certain oracles that bring real life data on chain that once triggering an event could trigger a smart contract to do something that normally you would have to manually reach out to a company to do. Um, That was the idea of this, you know, autonomous organization. Uh, But today, um, I'm, you know, I'll skip a few years of history of DAOs. Today, what we're seeing are largely um, communities with tokens, and they look like community tokens, but there is governance going on. I think that's a big kind of kernel um, or ingredient of the current DAO um, kind of structure that we see today. You have token-weighted governance, so your token is commensurate with your voting power. Um, This is something that Vitalik actually put out an article recently kind of ushering ushering DAOs to move away from um, as it's not incredibly democratic. However, another element is um, basically allocating the capital or treasury uh, to do things in this very open way. So what we're seeing are basically DAOs have a um, cooperative moment. They look a lot more like co-ops than they do autonomous organizations in the traditional sense um. However, I, th- I think that DAO as an acronym is still a good way of putting it. How you would go about creating it. So primarily, um, they start with a token. They start with a well-distributed token. And then token-gated channels within a Discord is a great aggregating kind of public space for these communities. Um, just because the tooling is in place for you to set up channels within Discord that require you to have X amount of tokens... Um, this works really, really well for bringing people in that are actually members of the DAO and giving them a place to speak uh, to each other. And then there are voting mechanisms and tools, such as you know, the most popular one is Snapshot. Um, this is an Ethereum-based tool where, based on you know, you connect your wallet and based on the tokens you have, you can vote on an issue, and then that issue can um, either be passed or not. And that. That all primarily happens off chain. It's just an API that looks at your token balance at a certain time hence snapshot. Um, and then you can make a vote commensurate with that. And then the outcome of the vote is would set into motion what then um, whoever's, you know, executing on behalf of the DAO would do. So a good example would be looking at FWB. It's kind of like a social club DAO. Um, I think a good example would be like a Soho house as a real world analog. Um FWB is probably on a long enough timeline, much different than Soho house. And it's, it's actually probably much bigger and greater, I think, but, um, effectively it is a community of a ton of creators within the crypto space, a ton of, um, people that have been in the crypto space for a long time, combined with a bunch of, um, you know, well-connected people, um, that span across the globe that really want to do creative things together and there's verticals within fwb that focus on all sorts of different creative areas Um, there's also investment stuff Um, it's really just kind of like a bunch of clubs within a larger club Um, and the the sense of community is so real and you really feel that and i think that's a party to everyone having you know a very tangible shared value of that community as opposed to you pay Soho House to be a member and then it's a kind of one-way transactional thing. You're in this club. You buy into this club, but you're a co-owner of this club. And I think that that departure from this prior model and being a more cooperative model is very, very conducive for a lot of new and cool activity that we're seeing with FWB.
0: Okay, so you've met, you've already raised the issue or topic of uh, community community tokens social tokens um to, but to what extent are these tokens you get from DAOs affected by the overall crypto liquidity you know bitcoin price and etc
1: yeah i think that's a good question um i will say so like you know just to lean back into the fwb example because they saw a ton of price activity over the past two months um Basically a very prominent investor wanted to invest into um, FWB and the speculation of that happening as well as how at what price they could get in made the price effectively 10X within a month. And this is great for everybody. I mean, there's no doubt that holding membership to this community and it 10Xing in value is going to make you feel good. But very quickly, a lot of people highlighted the fact that, that the barrier to entry was now prohibitively high. And while being a part of a club that may have cost $1,000, now cost $10,000 might be exciting in that you can exit and get that money back. You don't necessarily want to exit this club. So it's not like you're realizing that value either. All that's happened in the process is you've prohibited people from joining at a barrier to entry that is approachable for the audience you want to go after. So now FWB is exploring how can we use NFTs as a seasonal entrance pass for what we're going to be calling fellows. And this kind of evolution is a very kind of iterative think on your feet, adapt to what's happening approach. Um, And it's, 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 it's kind of, I'm not going to say or go as far as saying that it's solved for this upside kind of barrier that's been introduced, um, but it's, it's a good example of how the community is incredibly responsive to that slight paradox. Now, the opposite paradox is you have a community token with a community and the price can be incredibly volatile um, up or down. What if you have people that buy in and the price goes down? How do they feel about it? Do they feel that the value is, is still there for them? And whereas there's, there's not as many kind of examples of that because for the most part, most that have gone through that process have come back up. Um, I think that we need to think about these things more as dynamically priced clubs in this interim and less as investments. Because your membership is the driving motivation, you you choose to buy in at a time where the price is actively reflected based on the market sentiment of the value of joining that club. Because these are liquid memberships, um, there's typically a reason why something is priced the way that it is. So if the price drops you know, you could speculate and say, I'm going to join this club now because the price is lower and I anticipate that it'll go back up and therefore I will get in at a cheaper rate. Uh, But you might also think that, um, let's say it's attached to a very real world event that happened, such as this person who leads this community token did something controversial. You know, um, my caveat there is fan clubs might require, like say on Patreon, you to pay you know, a month up front or as much as a year up front. And I won't use specific artists, but if you've, you know, let's say you are a member of a Patreon of an artist that did something that got them canceled on Twitter. And then a bunch of people stopped signing up for Patreon and someone could lose your money. I think that's no different than how we look at these community tokens as memberships, with the exception being, unlike Patreon, you can exit even though it's at a discounted rate for these community tokens. You still maintain that availability to exit um, so long as there is at least some liquidity. So that, that is an interesting you know, political economic factor or psychological play there where you do at any point have some incentive to exit. There is some sort of rebate value that you couldn't get back even if it's lower than what you entered at.
0: Okay. Is that is that the way a DAO works? You can only get in by paying money?
1: No. Um, that is the most standard kind of participatory level that I'm seeing. Um, but DAOs, again, are emerging. And in, in I'm speaking towards the kind of more contemporary understanding of a DAO. DAOs are largely representative of a cooperative, However, there are other DAOs where I'm a member of a DAO called Museo and I donated an NFT, but I minted the NFT. It was my NFT. I, I paid the gas cost to mint it, but there really was no market for the NFT. Um, no one wanted the NFT. It was more something that I, I minted for myself because I wanted a record on chain of something that I thought was unique and it was a, an important point of history in ethereum's lifetime and i ended up donating it to museo dao which is a museum of nfts museo dao gives you ownership in their dao by donating these nfts so there that's an interesting way of um joining that dao however um i i i'm i'm kind of struggling to think of one off the top of my head, but there are other DAOs where membership is extended to people based on more reputational characteristics, such as you're a prominent NFT collector. We would love to have you as a member of this NFT collector DAO, Um, or you're a prominent NFT artist. We would love to have you as a prominent member of this DAO. And um, there there are plenty of examples of that where you see people being rewarded from the DAO just because of the reputation that they have created within this space already okay sure
0: you know you've mentioned a few DAOs, but are there any attractive DAOs to be part of in the music in-
1: industry specifically um there there are a couple um the the m- most interesting one to me is this DAO called song camp um it's the started by this guy matthew who has basically created a bunch of um songwriting and production sessions with groups of people. And then they've released those, those songs um, using NFTs and they've used that revenue to drive it back to the DAO and very, very interesting model. And he's doing it in basically versions. And one of the more recent versions was Electra and Electra was basically a group that, that spun out these songs that these strangers got together online and created (laughs) And then they sold them and then they brought that revenue back in and they created Electra DAO. So you could argue that Song Camp is a DAO, but it also spits out DAOs <laughs> as a result of being a DAO. Um, very, very interesting concept there. Um, another one, um, I mean, it's not so much a DAO and I wouldn't call it a DAO at all actually, but um, I think there's a future where inevitably it becomes a DAO, is Seed Club? Uh, one of my most favorite people in the space, Jess Sloss, started Seed Club and basically focuses on social tokens, community tokens, and really challenges, constantly challenges the thinking around them um, and, and, and simultaneously innovates through what they call cohorts of uh, community creators where they explore the use of a social token. So, in a way, Seed Club kind of incubates, I think, um, a bunch. Of a very early stage DAOs or pre DAOs um, to get towards that DAO timeline via social tokens, and that's very exciting. Um, and this is, these are both very, very accessible for people via Discord. You don't need to buy into them, you don't necessarily need tokens either to join those conversations. Um, with respect to other DAOs, there's another one on my radar, it's called Float DAO, that's with a ph float. Um, Another one would be, um, gosh, I I should like look at my Discord tab because I don't want to forget, um, you know, important ones. But FWB is great for music. It is a little bit expensive at this time. There are, I think, remedies being put. There are remedies being put into place for that concern. Um, Seed Club, Forefront, not really a DAO, but they have a token. But they basically cover this whole space. Um, I really, really love all of the content that comes out of Forefront. And you don't need tokens to access that. Um, but they really leverage the community to contribute content, um, and contribute more administrative and operational work as well. Um, so that's been a great experiment. And then, of course, my artist DAOs. I'm, I'm working on one that I won't talk about, but um, RAC with the money sign in front of it is a social token for the artist RAC. And it's not a DAO yet. We're not calling it a DAO, but it's a community token. And I think over time, it'll start to look a lot more like a a contemporary DAO where the community is much more involved in the direction of that project.
0: Interesting. Do you have any more
1: social token
0: DAOs such as uh, ROC? There
1: there are um, other artists who have explored tokenizing their community in some way or form. rally rally rally.io does this for artists they are they're a side chain they're a kind of a more centralized version Um, but they've done a lot of experimentation around the application for tokens and rewarding communities it's been a really interesting experience to watch that i would say for anyone else to look at that um it's a great place to kind of start and look at you know and actually have a big index of community tokens that you could dig into and, you know, kind of see how these different creators are treating them like that. Um, But there are some other artists, music artists that are exploring how tokens can aggregate their fan bases and give them some sort of um, ownership over kind of the fandom or community that, you know, they want to be associated with. And I won't I won't identify them, but um, if you keep an eye on hi-fi labs and what we're doing, you should, uh, you should be privy to that information as it comes out.
0: Okay. Now, Jack, the last um, question I have for you is based off uh, an artist friend of mine. She's, um, she's blowing up hugely in the UK. Um, She's amazing. But I was, I was speaking to her recently about, um, you know, this whole crypto music space and, and to be fair to her, you know, she, she doesn't really know a huge amount about crypto and she's very zoned in on the whole uh, traditional music industry. And there were, four con- there were four kind of concerns that she raised. Um, first, it was to do with uh, the fact that Spotify's cut is worth it because once you get onto Spotify's playlist, that essentially makes the song go viral. Um, but also for the fact that she has no time; she's either on social media, she's playing live, she's at a shoot, she's writing music. Um, but also selling NFTs can possibly seem a bit exploitative to their fans. Yeah, so those those three concerns about ex- about being exploitative, about having no time, and you know, Spotify is you know technically worth it. What would you? What What are your thoughts on these points um, and how do kind of nfts and DAOs sort these problems
1: so let me tackle it by the time one i think the time one is incredibly valid um i think that uh anyone who kind of tells me this it resonates with me and I, I again it's like there's this language barrier that like alone is going to take tons of time just to expose yourself to before you start to understand things and then you ultimately you know are above that learning curve and it takes less time to get involved in things and people simply just don't have the availability to get up that learning curve they don't there's no there's no room Um, between now and say the next six months for them to even spend the amount of time online, you know, deep in channels, chatting with people and reading things to understand stuff. I get that. And I think that's on the crypto industry, not on your artist friend. And I think that that is a a barrier that we need to work to reduce. And that's something that I'm excited to continue to work on at HiFi Labs. Separately, the argument that Spotify is good, I think you know, I don't think once on this call I I mentioned anything about Spotify streaming royalty rates and you know criticize them. I think that that is a a very valid argument. I think that um, Spotify streaming royalty rates, while they suck, are also not a problem of Spotify's. They're not Spotify's not responsible for them. Copyright royalty boards set royalty rates on compositions, and whoever negotiating your recording side is is most likely um, predicating that. And then your ownership of that is largely you know, played into that as well. I mean, if you own a lot of something, you're set to make more than if you own very little of it. That to be said, it sounds like she's very fortunate that she's even being playlisted. Um, I work with artists that have, you know, anywhere between six-figure followings a month on Spotify or listeners a month on Spotify to over millions of listeners on Spotify per month. And I know how much money they're making. And I don't think it's a lot. I do not think that they are making what they deserve for the cultural impact they're having with the music itself. I think that in a world where they can go out and play live shows and make a killing, that, that argument is kind of a non-starter because they don't care. Um, but I, I, I don't want to challenge the existing system. I, I understand it very intimately, and I, I recognize why it is the way that it is. Um, especially historically speaking, why copyright is the way that it is, why royalty rates are set the way that they are, and why royalties are divided on a market share model and not on a per stream basis. I understand all of that. I also understand why certain businesses that are involved in the process of the creation of music and distribution of it should rightfully earn their share of that process. It's an incredibly expensive and burdensome process, the way the supply chain is currently structured. Now, I will say that if the supply chain was reformatted, it could be much more cost effective and we could return much greater revenue back to the original creator. Sure, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But I think the politics and immediate needs of the business don't really allow that kind of latitude. So what I'm excited about are the new net new revenue areas that Crypto carves out for artists to help subsidize streaming revenue. Because streaming revenue is a buffet. That's great. If you want to pay $10 a month and have all-you-can-eat music, that's fine. I think that there should be a place for that. I personally don't want to go buy a social token for, say, Fleetwood Mac or Bob Dylan just to listen to their music in the future. That sounds awful. That sounds like incredibly prohibitive. It sounds like um, it doesn't really allow the culture to flow the way that I want it to. But if we can create new revenue models, new distribution models, in addition to what's already in place I guarantee you we can increase the revenue pie for artists and we can do so in a technically responsible way that doesn't make some of the mistakes of our existing infrastructure that does allow a more efficient process that does allow more revenue to return back and I don't know a better tool set than web 3.0 to be the backbone of that future
0: yeah that's a very good note to end off on I completely agree thank you Jack.